Two of the most beloved and well-known hymns in our hymn book are I Love to Tell the Story and Tell Me the Old, Old Story of Jesus and His Love. Today we look at the familiar old, old story of the birth of the Lord Jesus. So open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 2. The words that we've heard many, many times, you hear it every year if you watch a Charlie Brown Christmas and Linus walks out and recites it. We didn't have Linus, but we did have Elder Steve Andrews read it to us just a few minutes ago. There'll be preachers all around the world by the thousands preaching on these words today in different languages and in different settings. And though we have read them and heard them preached on many, many times, we should never take for granted this wonderful account in the Gospel of Luke. So we're going to go over them again, verse by verse, and go a little bit deeper than usual and see some sparkling glories that are not as obvious, but are very deep, and they capture the spirit of what happened then. Last week, we looked at the nativity according to Matthew, chapter 2. Today, we look at the nativity from the point of view of Mary. Matthew records it from Joseph's point of view, Luke from Mary's point of view. For example, in chapter 1, the Annunciation to Mary, Matthew 1, the Annunciation to Joseph. We begin with verse 1, the setting. It came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed or registered. This tells us the where and the when. Where? Roman Empire on planet Earth, over there in the land of Israel, specifically in Judea, also known as Judah. And when? It tells us the historical markers. In the days of Caesar Augustus and then this governor, Quirinius, in verse 2, the governor of Syria. So historians have tracked that down. That's the setting. This tells us, of course, that the Christmas story is not a myth or a fable. It's history, his story. And then it starts here with Caesar Augustus, the ruler of the Roman Empire and all the countries that they had conquered. And it says that a decree went out that all the world, that is all the Roman Empire, should be taxed. They have to be registered to pay their taxes. This isn't anything new. Politicians are, want to increase taxes, not decrease them. But this was a special tax because there were regular taxes that they would be paid where people lived and that the governors and people like that would regularly issue those taxes. But this was one it was for the whole Roman Empire, and so the tax collectors said, how do we collect these taxes? And someone came up with the idea, we'll send everyone, whether they're a citizen or a slave or whomever, they may just be travelers passing through, they all have to go back to the city where they were born. That's where the birth records would be stored. And they say, then we'll have the tax collectors in all those places checking off the names and assessing the taxes. And that's what they did. Verses 4 and 5, or excuse me, 3, so everyone went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, that's up north, out of the city of Nazareth, where he was working, into Judea, that's in the south, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. Joseph was born in Bethlehem, but we're not told when or how or why he moved up to Nazareth from the south. You know, there are people that move from the south up north. Me. I'm a son of the south, and the Lord brought me up here. And so for some reason, he moved up north and set up his carpentry business in the town of Nazareth. But then when the decree went out, there would be heralds saying, everybody go back to the town where you were born. And so that's where Joseph and his betrothed wife, Mary, went down there. Curiously, Matthew 1 records Joseph's genealogy. Luke records Mary's genealogy. And so we're told that he was descended not just from Abraham, as all the Jews were, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but from David. 
David was given the promise from God that from him a king would come that would sit on the throne in Israel, like David, but especially that great king that would be the Messiah, the Savior. And so Matthew 1 records that genealogy, and if you look at it closely, that royal lineage is being passed on down to Joseph and from Joseph to Jesus. You read the Gospel of Matthew, it repeatedly says Jesus is the king of the Jews, not Caesar, but Jesus came first to set up a spiritual kingdom and then later a, a greater kingdom when he returns to the earth. So Jesus would be the true king of the Jews as the wise men saw last week. Mary is also descended from David if you look at the genealogy in Luke chapter 4. And she was also from Bethlehem. So they're both returning to the town where they were born. And the tax people would look up the records and say, here's how much tax you owe. Brings us next to verse 5. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. You remember back in chapter 1, the angel made the announcement, you will be the mother of the Messiah. And Joseph won't be the father. God is the father. And she said, how can this be? I'm a virgin. And the angel said, a special miracle will happen. God will be the father. This is his eternal son. In the miracle of the Holy Spirit and the virgin birth, you will be the mother of the Messiah. And I believe that at that very moment, Jesus was conceived in her womb when she said, let it be unto me according to the word of the Lord. And then the clock started ticking. Month one, two, the first trimester, then the second, and then the third. And now it says here, the time had come for her to be delivered of the child, verse six. The days were completed. Nine months of waiting. Wonder what she and Joseph thought about and spoke about during those nine months. They'd say, now, did we get that right, what the angels said? Yes, Mary, because he said it to me too. Did he say it to anybody else? No, just us. Oh, Elizabeth and Zechariah, the relatives of Mary, had found out. But they were waiting. What's it going to be like? What's it going to look like? And Mary had said, how can this be? She's still wondering, how can this baby be the son of God in human flesh? Deep profundity. It says here, at the right time, the days were completed. But that's not just the calendar of the nine months. Galatians 4 says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Romans 5 says Jesus died at the right time. The specific time and place and everything about Jesus coming into the world had been predestined back in eternity. God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit all met in holy convocation and said, the Son will come into the earth on that day at that very minute for this special mission. It's predestined. And then throughout the Old Testament, prophets inspired by God had predicted it. Brother Steve read the prediction in Micah 5, 2 about the very place Jesus would be born. Isaiah predicted the names given to him. Isaiah also said he would be born of a virgin and many other prophecies. He was predestined in eternity, promised in the Old Testament. Now the time came for that baby. One lesser known Christmas hymn says, prophesied, now arrived, Jesus is born. The time came. This is the most important event since creation. More than the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, the Egyptian Empire, and all the other ones, the kings and queens and prophets had all come and gone. This is the most important event. More important than the plagues in Egypt or the birth of the Roman Empire. In a similar way, what is the most important event in a person's life? It's not his college degree or graduating high school or anything like that. Not joining the army or getting out of the army or even getting married. Most event, most important event is when he knows this Jesus as his savior and he is born again like Jesus was born on that holy night. 
Bible says that Jesus is born in us when we are saved. Galatians 4.19, till Jesus is formed in you. He is born in us when we are born again. Has that happened to you? Have you been born again? Has that most important event possible happened in your life? There's another parallel between the birth of Jesus and our new birth. They're both supernatural. We were born physically, naturally, by the conception produced by our parents. But the new birth is not brought about by anything by our parents, by priests, by preachers, rabbis. It's brought about by God alone, for it was God alone, the Holy Spirit, that produced the conception and birth of Jesus. Mary only believed and submitted, but the miracle happened by the Holy Spirit. Now, I say that there is a parallel. When we are born again, it's not by our efforts. It's certainly not by our good deeds. It's not by our parents or anybody else. It is a glorious miracle by the Holy Spirit. Just like the conception and birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of you here remember the very first Christmas you celebrated after you became a Christian. I do. That was 1972. That's over half a century ago. Some of you just a couple of years ago. Before that, Christmas was just another holiday. Maybe you didn't even believe in it. Maybe you were like Scrooge. Bah humbug. But when a person becomes a Christian and knows Jesus, Luke chapter 2 has new, new meaning. Even though you may have heard it and read it many times, you say, this is my Jesus that was born for me. But some of you have never celebrated Christmas in that way because you do not know this Jesus. He is not your Savior. He's just a name in history. We invite you to come and believe in this Jesus. This is a real story, and it can be a real story in your life when you believe in him so that this, why not do it this Christmas? What better time to believe in Jesus than at Christmas? And then next year, you'll remember this year. It says here that Mary brought forth, quote, her firstborn. And that was special to the Jews. The firstborn in the family has special privileges. The way that it's phrased it implies that he was the first, and later there would be other children. Yes, I believe that Mary and Joseph later had children themselves by natural procreation, but something else. Her firstborn. When we are born again, we join the family of God. We don't become God like Jesus, but it says in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, Jesus was predestined to save us so that he would be the firstborn of many brethren. That's us. We get adopted into his family, and then we can say, Our Father who art in heaven. He is the firstborn, and he's also God's only begotten son, John 3.16. Well, where does Joseph fit into all this? He wasn't the physical father of Jesus, and theologians have said, well, is he the adoptive father, that he adopted Jesus, perhaps? Or you could say he's the stepfather or the guardian. But that was a great blessing, just like Mary had this wonderful blessing of being the mother of the Messiah. And he would be the one that would bring Mary down to Bethlehem and would pay the taxes and he says, I'm the father of this family and I'm the leader. But notice on this night when Jesus was born, only Joseph and Mary were there. Shepherds hadn't come. The wise men hadn't come. Elizabeth and Zechariah were back, back up north again. This tells us there was no doctor to deliver the baby, no nurse, no midwife, no other woman to help out. So who helped deliver the baby? Joseph. Think about that. How many of you men would be prepared to deliver a baby? I'm not talking about being in the delivery room holding your hand while the doctors deliver. How many of you men, some of you men are acting very nervous right now, and even you bachelors. But Joseph helped out, and it was a safe delivery because God saw that it was safe and healthy for both mother and child. Well, what then if you been to a delivery room, you know what happens next. They want to keep the baby warm because in the womb it was warm, warmer than the temperature outside, so they immediately wrapped the baby up. 
And that's what Joseph and Mary did. They immediately wrapped up baby, the baby Jesus, says here, with swaddling clothes or cloths, strips of cloth. They probably brought them with them, a little blanket and these strips. But the custom then was, notice it says, they wrapped him. That's how the Jews did it with these long strips of cloth like bandages going round and round like a mummy. Do you see the irony in this? When he was born, they wrapped him up and put him in a manger. 33 years later, he died on a cross and they wrapped him up in a shroud and put him in a tomb. So from the womb to the tomb, Jesus came for this reason to save us from our sins. And then they lay baby Jesus wrapped up there in a manger. What's a manger? It's a feeding trough, more or less about the size of our communion table. They'd fill it with hay, sometimes with oats, to feed the animals. Hasn't that struck you just a little bit unusual? You go to the maternity ward of any hospital in the world, they're not going to have a feeding trough there. They'll have a special crib or a bed or something like that. They'll have special equipment in case it's needed because there's a birth defect or something like that. But a feeding trough. And so that tells us that it would be in a barn with animals. And if you know anything about barnyards or cattle, it's filthy. It would stink. Maybe Joseph took the animals out, but it was filthy like a barn. But that's also symbolic of something else. The world. The animals, they're just doing what animals do. It was natural filth. Jesus came into a world filthy with sin, which is far worse than any natural filth. Jesus came and humbled himself, and so there's significance in that manger and the barn. He was pure. He was not infected by our sin. And when people touched Jesus with, say, leprosy, he wasn't infected by their leprosy. They were touched by his holiness when he healed them. In the same way, we are filthy in our sins. Jesus was holy. When he touches us and saves us, he's not infected with our sins. He took our sins to the cross. And when he saves us, he transforms us. That's the miracle of salvation and the new birth. The text says that he was laid in a manger, verse 7, because there was no room for them in the inn. The local motel, and it'd be crowded because all these people coming to be registered and pay their taxes. I think the innkeeper should have given up his room or maybe gone to some other family or some individual and say, hey, lady with the baby, make room. She needs it, but he didn't do that. There was no room in the inn because there was no room in this innkeeper's heart. And isn't that a picture of people today? There are people that have no room for Jesus. The baby that was born in Bethlehem. No room. Maybe on their hearts there would be a sign blinking saying, no vacancy, no vacancy. It's filled with sin. No room for God, no room for Jesus. I don't want holiness. And so for them, Jesus is on the outside. Revelation 3.20, or the words of Jesus, he says, I stand at the door and knock. He wants to come in. Is he knocking on the door of anybody's heart here this morning? As you hear this message, he is knocking on your heart's door. And he says, I want to come in. In Revelation 3.20 says, he wants to come in and have a meal with you. He wants to share his love and joy and salvation with you. Open the door and believe in Jesus today. Is there room in your heart for Jesus? Another great Christmas hymn says, there is room in my heart for you, Lord Jesus. Now, verses 8 and following tell us the rest of the story of that holy night of which our choir just sang. Same night, look at verse 8. Now, there were in the same country that is in and around Bethlehem, shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Same night, because Jesus was born at night, he was born in Bethlehem. These are just outside on the rolling hills outside of Bethlehem. There were shepherds. We're not told how many. We don't know their names. But some people try to say, well, the shepherds were 
kind of the outcasts. No, 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 no. Shepherds were just average workers like Joe that works at the, as a carpenter or maybe you know someone works at a hardware store, sells insurance. It's just an average job. After all, Moses and David were both shepherds. And so it's at night, and what they would do is that they would count all the sheep by name, and they'd all sit around a campfire and tell stories and wait, and then gradually one of them would have to stay awake while the other ones went to sleep, and they'd take turns keeping watch over their sheep at night. Perhaps they'd tell campfire stories or talk about things in the Bible. Here's another irony. These were shepherds, and soon they would go see the one that said, I am the good shepherd. Jesus was the good shepherd. And more than that, Jesus, the good shepherd, became a sheep to save his sheep from the wolves, such as Satan. There's interesting turns of phrases in this story. Why these shepherds? Why wasn't there an announcement to all Jerusalem and Bethlehem and everywhere with angels making the announcement? Why did only these shepherds get this visit from the angel? Why were there only a few wise men that would come? Was it because the wise men were the intellectual philosophers? No. They were intellectuals, but they worshipped in a pagan religion until the star led them. What about the shepherds? Were they like David and Moses Chosen because they were so godly? No, they were just shepherds, just like us. The answer is in God. He sovereignly chose those shepherds. He sovereignly chose those men, just like he sovereignly chose Mary. Mary wasn't chosen because she was sinless and worthy to be called the queen of heaven, like our Catholic friends say. She was just another Jewish girl, a virgin. Joseph, just another Jewish man. This tells us the sovereign grace of God. God chose these shepherds to make the announcement, just like the wise men. And in the same way, why did God save you? If you are saved, is it because you were good and holy and a church going? No, no, no. God chose you because he is good. He sovereignly elected you. That sovereign choice that belongs to God. Our part is simply to believe like Mary submitted and as these shepherds went into Bethlehem. So there they are, sitting around a little campfire, maybe watching the silent stars go by as we sing in the old little town of Bethlehem. And then something surprising happened. Verse 9, Behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Out of nowhere, all of a sudden comes an angel. They'd never seen an angel before. We haven't. Bible mentions many angels. And this was probably Gabriel, the one that made the announcement to Mary, probably the one that made the announcement to Joseph. Angels are real. According to the Bible, they're invisible to us, just like God is, but like God, they see us and we don't see them. When I was a Young Christian, we used to sing a song, there are angels hovering round us. Some of you remember that song. There are angels here today, invisibly joining in in our worship. They love to be with Christians on the Lord's Day, hearing God's word preached and God's praise being sung. So the angels were already there. Now they appear, one of them shows up. Bible calls angels mighty angels and holy angels. And the holiness is reflected from God. And it says here, the glory of God shone all around them. It was reflected from the angel from God. And in in this, this reflection of the glory of God was a bright light. Notice it says, it, it went around them. The shepherds coming from the angel. Think in terms of a luminescent fog, like you know, you go at night and you turn on the headlights and it lights up the fog in front of you. That's what it was like. And so these shepherds are wondering what in the world is happening. This is what the old Jews called the Shekinah glory of God, the bright, luminescent glory of God, brighter than the sun in the sky. It was reflected from God off of the angel, now encircling them. 
and it appeared off and on in the Old Testament, it would later appear coming from Jesus on top of a little mountain, and it says that it wasn't reflected from Jesus, it came out of Jesus brighter than the sun in the sky. Now here's another irony. Angels often appeared in bright light, not only on this night when Jesus was born, look it up in the other Gospels, when the women came to the tomb where Jesus was born, they met two angels that were shining bright with the glory of God. If we could see them now, we'd see this bright light. Here's something else. Bible says that when we get to heaven, if we're Christians, we will be like the angels in certain ways. We don't become angels. They don't marry. We won't marry in heaven, but we will be made holy like they are. But we will also be reflecting the glory of God. Jesus said so in Matthew. We will shine forth with the glory of God. Our countenance, brighter than the sunlight, that's part of the glory of God given to us in our glorification. How did the shepherds respond? The old King James Version says they were sore afraid. They were terrified. They knew that they were guilty sinners. Perhaps they fell on their knees and begged, no, we're just unworthy shepherds. Don't kill us. Please give us a second chance. Have mercy. Have mercy. They were afraid. We would be too. When angels appeared in the Bible, they weren't like looking like little cupid people with little wings on their shoulder. They usually appeared as soldiers with, with, with knives and daggers and swords in their hands. People were afraid. Now here's a lesson. They were convicted. They knew they were sinners, and so they were afraid. The lesson is, when God begins to deal with a lost sinner, listen closely, he starts working on their conscience and they feel guilty. They're afraid of dying. They're afraid of going to hell. Like these shepherds, that's the Holy Spirit working, drawing a person to Christ so that he sees their, his need and cries out for salvation. Do you remember when that happened to you? If you're a believer, you'll remember the conviction of sin, maybe the nightmares you had. And then the breakthrough when God said, do not fear, I've come to save you. <coughs> Maybe someone here is going through <coughs> conviction of sin and guilt feelings, and you're afraid like these shepherds. Don't fight that. Listen to what the angel said to the shepherds. He said, I bring you good news. The good news is the gospel. Now, other sinners are not afraid. They'll hear the Christmas story. They'll maybe be in church this morning. But again, no vacancy in their heart. They're ignoring God, and there are people that don't even care. They don't want to hear the old, old story. It's a bad news story to them. And they say, I'm not afraid like these other people, but one day they will be. When they see this baby is the Lord, the judge at judgment day, every knee will bow to him one way or the other. Christians should have a reverential respect and godly fear of the Lord. Not a dread of hell, but a respectful fear of God. What did the angels say? Verse 10. Do not be afraid. Fear not. I bring you good tidings of great joy which will be to all people. Do not fear. Angels often said that. Jesus often said that. Do not fear. The angel didn't kill, come to kill them. Jesus didn't come to bring judgment. He came to bring salvation. This angel came to bring the announcement of salvation. Good tidings. The gospel, that's what gospel means. Good news. The best news. And it says of great joy. You remember last week? The wise men, when they saw the star and saw the baby, it says they were filled with exceedingly great joy. There's a lesson. True joy, not just natural happiness, comes when we know Jesus and we believe that gospel and are drawn to him. True joy, not like the world has. God turns our fear into joy like these shepherds. They were afraid. Now they'll be filled with joy. You remember when that happened to you? When you were saved, one of the first emotions that ran through your heart was great joy. Like waking up from a nightmare, I'm saved. All that guilt and fear is gone. 
Maybe someone here has not experienced that. But you can today by believing in this Jesus. Your sins will be taken away and you'll experience the joy of salvation. The angel said this good news is to all the people, to the Jews, and to all the Gentiles, and that includes us. The angel told them this message. Important lesson number, I've lost count today. The angel obeyed God and told them the good news. You see where I'm going with this, Will? Let us go and tell other people the good news. The good news of Jesus, why he was born. That Christmas isn't about Santa Claus and reindeer. It's about the baby born and laid in the manger to save us from our sins. Since December 1st, how many people have you told the gospel to during the Christmas season? Still not too late. Maybe phone someone up tonight or tomorrow. Give them a gospel tract. Pray with them. Some people do get saved even at Christmas. Verse 11 tells us the message. When? This day. Where? The city of David. That's Bethlehem. Who is born? Now notice the three titles that the angel announces. The angel didn't give them these titles. They were bestowed by God the Father. The first is, to you is born a Savior. 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Matthew chapter 1, you shall call his name Jesus. In Hebrew, Yeshua. For he shall save his people from their sins. That's what his name Yeshua, Jesus, means. The Savior. God alone is the Savior. This baby is God. Friends, we need a Savior. We can't save ourselves. We're on thin ice. We could go through the ice of death at any time. We need someone to save us, to rescue us. A brother from the Middle East that we heard from a few weeks ago just reported about his recent trip. Moving story. Read his newsletter about this woman from the Middle East that was dying and she knew she was dying and Saeed shared the gospel with her and said, you can't be saved by obeying Islamic law and being a good person. You need a savior. She says, I need someone to save me. I, I, I'm about to die and I'm going to go to hell. I'm so guilty. And our brother said, there is a Savior. His name is Jesus. And he shared the moving story. And she said, Savior, what a wonderful word, a Savior. And she believed in Jesus. And she was saved. Jesus is that Savior, not ourselves. Secondly, the angel said he is Christ. In Greek, that would be Christos, but it comes from the Hebrew Messiah, Messiah. The anointed one, the savior, the one that God sends into the world. First to the Jews, but then also to the Gentiles. Isn't it sad that most Jews don't believe Jesus is their Messiah? Pray for your Jewish friends to believe in him. Thirdly, the angel says he is Christ the Lord, the Lord. That's a title for God alone. The Bible calls Jesus the Lord of Lords, the Lord of all, the Lord I say he is the Lord of love. And this is very important. When we come to believe in him to save us, we acknowledge he is not just Savior, not just God in the flesh. He is Lord, and that means to believe in him, we submit to his lordship. We bow before him like the wise men, and I think the shepherds did. They bowed before him. You surrender to him. You stack arms and say, I give up. I give up, Lord. I bow before you. Those that have never bowed before the Lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ have never experienced salvation. But the moment you do and you believe and you repent and submit to his Lordship, in a moment you're saved and you're no longer a lost sinner. You are saved. You belong to Jesus. Amen. Look at verse 12. The angel is saying, go and find this baby. This will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. The angel says, go and find him. But the angel didn't give specific directions. It's kind of mysterious. You're going to find a baby. Well, of course. He's going to be wrapped in swaddling clothes, of course. 
the clue was he's going to be in a manger. And the shepherd said, manger, barn. How many babies are going to be in a barn tonight in a manger? Well, let's go and find, maybe peek in all the barns in Bethlehem and find which one it would be. In a manger, therefore in a barn. In an unlikely place, I'm sure the shepherd said, that doesn't seem appropriate. Here's another lesson. The gospel doesn't make sense to most lost sinners. It seems foolish to think God became a man, a Jew, a manger. Doesn't make sense to them. But we know better, don't we? He was laid in a manger, and the shepherds were told, go and find him. This is true wisdom. Okay, here's here's the part that I really like. Look at verses 13 to 15. Suddenly... There was without one angel a multitude of the heavenly host, that's all the other angels, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Suddenly, that curtain that separates the visible and the invisible. Colossians 1 says, Jesus is Lord of everything visible and invisible. There's a curtain, as it were, between the visible and natural universe that we can see and touch and hear and the invisible universe where the angels and the demons live and where God shows himself they see us we don't but on this occasion the hand of God just opened that curtain and there are all these angels singing flying around in the sky have you ever wondered If you could get a peek into heaven, what would it look like and sound like? This. Heaven is filled with angels and Christians singing and praising God. And so these shepherds were given a glimpse of what's on the other side of the curtain in heaven. The verse says there's a multitude. How many? Well, the Bible occasionally talks about how many. There are myriads of myriads and multitude. Theologians will say there's at least as many angels as there are human beings. Now, now follow me. The human race keeps multiplying. Every like 50 years it doubles in size. So I think we're up to close to 8 billion now. But it's still multiplying. There are at least 8 billion angels now. But since we are multiplying, the angels don't multiply. Therefore, there are already vastly more angels than there are humans. Why do I say that? They appeared on that night. I sometimes say, go out at night and just look up in the sky. Maybe go out in the country and you'll see thousands of stars. The astronomers say the average person could see about 3,000 stars with just his regular eyesight. But you get out telescopes and you'll see far more. And the best telescopes, did you know what the astronomers say? They say there are more stars in the sky than all the grains of sand on all the beaches on earth and then some. It's like that with the angels. Hebrews 1, 6 says, let all the angels of God worship him on that night. So the curtain was opened up and they didn't just see stars, they saw angels by the thousands, millions, billions, trillions, gazillions, all in every which direction. Just imagine what that looked like. Imagine what it sounded like. They're all singing together. Praising God, it says here. Their chief duty and their joy is to worship God. And they sing this song, Glory to God in the highest. It's in Latin, we sang it earlier. Gloria in excelsis Deo. They're singing. The Bible often says angels love to sing. They're singing right now. They were singing with us when we sang those hymns a few minutes ago. They love to sing and they're always in perfect harmony. Perfect pitch. The right tone, the volume, the speed, all together antiphonally and singing bass in a hundred part harmony. Have you ever heard a really great professional choir? I thank God for our choir, but have you ever heard one that has a hundred voices, two hundred, all of them with professionally trained voices? I heard one like that when singing Handel's Messiah and hair on the back of my neck stood up. Oh, man. That's nothing compared to the angelic choir. Think of billions and billions all singing perfectly. They didn't even have to practice. Perfect harmony, the right attitude. Praise. 
Bible says that in Job chapter 38, the angels sang for joy when God created the universe. Did you know that? They sang for joy. Luke 15 says the angels rejoice when even one sinner repents. Brothers and sisters, when you repented and believed in Jesus, the angels began to sing. Some of you have heard of Francis Schaeffer. He had that ministry in Switzerland many years ago. He said every now and then one of these young people had forsook atheism and became a Christian, and in the next chapel service at their little chalet in Switzerland, someone would sit the organ and they'd sing the Hallelujah Chorus. Another person has been saved and is joining with us in praising God. The angels rejoice and sing, when one sinner repents, let me ask you a serious question. If you're not a believer, the angels are waiting to sing at your conversion. They're waiting. They want you to be, they don't know who's going to be saved, but they know God is still saving people. They're waiting. What are you waiting for? Back in New Orleans as kids, we'd kind of sound snarky and say, what are you waiting for, buddy, Christmas? What are you waiting for? It is Christmas. What better time to believe in Jesus than the angels will sing again. They sing over and over again. Isaiah 6, they were singing holy, holy, holy. And then 700 years later, Revelation 4, they're singing the same thing, adding new verses over and over again. What would the angels have sung later in Jesus' life? You ever thought about that? They would have rejoiced and sung at his baptism. And whenever he did a miracle, healing someone, saving someone, what would they have sung on Good Friday when Jesus was crucified? You might say, well, that was a sad day. Was it a dirge? No. Angels see things differently than we do. They would sing when Jesus was crucified because they saw the significance of it. It says in 1 Peter 1, they look into these things. They would have praised God for the display of his love at, at the cross. His wisdom, his power. Then they would have added new verses to this chorus. When Jesus rose from the dead, I'm sure they said, boys, let's sing our best. The Savior has been risen. And then when he ascended back up into heaven, what a song went through the portals of heaven as they said, he is now glorified and he's on the throne. What will they sing at his second coming? What will they sing at judgment day? You see, the angels will be singing at all these events. And we will join that choir when we get to heaven because Revelation talks about the angels and the saints singing together. And sometimes the angels sing, sometimes the saints, and it is all together. Lesson is we should now start to sing unto this Lord Jesus Christ like the angels did then, like the saints are now. We need to sing. God loves to hear us sing praises about Jesus. Look at what they're singing. Verse 14. Glory to God in the highest. Now that could be rendered in two ways. First it could be rendered God most high. Glory to God who is transcendent. He's above us. Like some nations that have a king, they'll say, Your, your highness as a prince your majesty as a king. Or this could be rendered, we give the highest glory to him, our highest and best praise. Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, our highest love and glory and praise should go to God, including this baby, the Lord Jesus Christ, because he is God in the flesh. That surprises some people that the angels worship Jesus. But again, Hebrews 1.6 says, when he brings forth his firstborn into the Son, he said, let all the angels of God worship him. The Bible forbids us from worshiping angels. Angels worship Jesus. Let us worship Jesus. All these billions and billions of angels were worshiping that little baby that was so small you could hold him in one hand, so young he hadn't even opened his eyes yet, he hadn't been 24 hours in this world. They worshipped him because they saw him for what he is. If you're not worshipping Jesus, it's because you do not really see him for who and what he is. What is he? He's God and man joined together in that one body, in that one person. And that will move us to say glory to God in the highest. And it says also, and on earth, 
peace, goodwill to men. Now, unfortunately, so many people think that means, well, just be nice, be friendly. Let's stop war and have peace, group hug. Well, all that's good, but that's not what these angels are saying about. What they're saying is, through this baby, we can have peace with God. Bible says we're enemies of God. God is our enemy because we are sinners. There needs to be a truce. There needs to be a surrender. Wave the white flag. I give up. We believe in Jesus. We are reconciled. We are at peace. Isaiah prophesied and says he is the prince of peace. Ephesians says he made peace for us by the blood of the cross. We are reconciled. Are you reconciled? Do you know peace with God? Philippians 4 says we can know peace with God. And then we have the peace of God in our hearts. That's what the angels meant. On earth, peace and goodwill toward men. Not goodwill us to other men, but God's goodwill to us. God is a good God. He desires lost sinners to be saved. He offers them peace and salvation. God sincerely desires your salvation. Why are you saved? Because it was God's choice and God's good pleasure, his goodwill toward you. And the wonderful thing is, it's not just his goodwill to holy angels, but to lost sinners. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Verse 15, now the show of the angels begins to fade away. It says, when the angels had gone away from them back to heaven. So these shepherds look up and now it's like that curtain is beginning to close and they're beginning to fade away back into the invisible universe. Then one last angel goes through and the curtain's closed and all they see is stars in the sky and sheep on the earth and they look at each other. If I'd been there, I'd have said, double wow. Wow. We're not imagining this thing, men. They were struck by holy awe. The angels are gone. They had no doubts of what they had seen and heard. And notice it said, which the Lord has made known to us. They did not say just what the angel had said and shown us, but what the Lord. Oh, there's a great lesson there. God uses means like angels, preachers, uses you when you share the gospel. He uses the Bible. When you read the Bible, don't just say, well, that was Luke and that was Paul and that was Moses. No, no, no. Read the Bible and discover what the Lord has made known. That's an important principle. And when the Lord really makes it known to you, salvation emerges. Verses 16 and 17, so they left with haste. They probably ran from that hill into Bethlehem and so, We'll go to a barn. You, you go over there, find that barn. I'll go this way. Yeah, okay. And then we'll report back and go into it, knock on the door. So it says they went with haste. They hurried. No delay. Here's another lesson. If you're a lost sinner, don't delay. Don't wait one more day. Don't delay and make excuses. Be like these shepherds. Come with haste to the Lord Jesus. God has not promised you one more day of life. Don't put it off. The longer you delay, the harder it gets. The longer delay you have, you will have more sins to account before God at Judgment Day. And the longer delay, you, you will have less time to repent. Do it now. Be like them. Come with haste. And come to the Lord Jesus. The wise men came. They came in faith. They bowed. They worshipped him. So did the shepherds. And that's what happens when we come to him. We come in faith. We come in submission. We come with an open heart that will worship him. Who? Jesus, the God-man. As we sing in one of the hymns, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Don't you wish you could have been one of those shepherds or the wise men and seen that baby in the arms of Mary and knowing that's the son of God God in the flesh. How could it be? But it is. You wish you could have seen him. You know, we sometimes speculate about heaven, and it's often people guess, I wonder about things that had happened in my life. Maybe God will play back a 
video movie and show me those things and said, I did that and I was, going, I was invisibly doing these things. Maybe there's some things you don't want to see again, but maybe, just maybe, when we get to heaven, God's going to play the tape back so that we can see Jesus in the manger as a baby. I don't see why not. But we will see him on the throne as the mature God-man in all of his glory, ruling the universe in the resplendent glory that the angels saw that night. We will see him. The Bible says we will see him face to face. Verse 18 says the shepherds, as they saw Jesus, they went out and told others in the neighborhood, probably knocked on the door, hey, wake up there, Messiah has been born. He's here. And those that heard it marveled. And let's tell other people and hopefully they will also believe. But Mary, it says in verse 19, she didn't go telling people. It says Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. We're going to look at that verse tonight in our evening meeting. The section of the old, old story concludes verse 20. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. They went back to the sheep. The other day I was listening to the, old, to the old Johnny Cash Christmas album, and he sang the hymn, Who Kept the Sheep? Who looked after those sheep? You know, sh shepherds are not going to leave sheep out there. They want someone to watch God, but they all went in who watched the sheep. God watched the sheep. He is the good shepherd. No wolf or thief would come and take them. The Lord is my shepherd. And it says that they, praising and glorifying God, just like the angels, they probably began to sing and remembered what the angels sang. Brothers and sisters, let's remember this old, old story of the angel, the angels, and especially the baby in the manger. He's the center of it all. Not the angels. The angels said, go to him. Look at him. And when we come to him, we come in faith and in love, we bow and we worship that baby. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the old, old story of Jesus' birth. We'll never forget it because we'll remember it through the eons of eternity. Thank you for the joy and the peace we feel as we think of Jesus and the love that we imbibe as we draw close to him. Thank you for the love that sent Jesus into the world and for the love that Jesus brings with him into our hearts. In the name of this Jesus, we pray. Amen.